Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise in Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's get to an update to the story of the missing Minnesota mother that we first talked about back in late May. 26-year-old Madeline Kingsbury had been missing since March 31st, and from the get-go, law enforcement seemed to be zeroing in on her two children's father, Adam Fravel. Well, let's rewind back to the last day Madeline was seen. Now, her and Adam had jointly taken the two children to daycare at 8 o'clock in the morning on that last day of March. According to Adam, they both returned to the residence they shared, and then Adam left for work at 10 a.m. He claims Madeline stayed at the home, expecting her to possibly be working remotely. Madeline, or someone using her phone, did send a laughing emoji to her sister in reference to a photo that was sent that night before. Now, that photo, that was from a vacation that the two had taken last summer, and that emoji was sent at 8.15 that morning. Well, later that morning, co-workers at the Mayo Clinic became concerned when Madeline did not show up for work, and then the daycare was also alarmed when she didn't pick up her children at the designated time. Adam, for his part, said when he returned later that day, Madeline was not at home. Well, when I first reported this story back in May, police had declared her disappearance suspicious, and they considered her an endangered missing person. That all changed last week, when police found Madeline's remains in a rural area of Fillmore County, wrapped in a gray bedsheet. According to the criminal complaint, a deputy from the Fillmore County Sheriff's Office was searching a rural area located in Fillmore County about a mile off Highway 43. There, he found a human body wrapped in a gray-fitted bedsheet, secured with black Gorilla Tape. And for those asking what Gorilla Tape is, well, it's a brand of heavy-duty tape that's often used for outdoor purposes because of its ability to really hold securely in difficult situations. Now, Madeline's body was discovered in a trench that was connected to a gravel road. And why were they searching this property? Why search there? Well, through the investigation, law enforcement had discovered that Adam's family had helped maintain this exact property and that it was in close proximity to Adam's parents' home. Well, following the discovery, investigators searched Adam and Madeline's home where they found a roll of black Gorilla Tape that matched the color and width of the tape found on the fitted sheet used to wrap the body. They also linked the gray fitted sheet as one similar to a set of sheets found in the home. Now, once investigators identified the remains of those of Madeline, Adam was arrested on charges of second-degree murder. However, authorities are saying the final decision on charges against Adam aren't completely determined, and a special prosecutor has been hired to consult in the case. Now, police may be determining if the charge can be elevated, since Adam had allegedly told Madeline that if she did not listen up, that she would end up like Gabby Petito. According to the criminal complaint, Adam had been infatuated with Gabby's case. The complaint also states that Adam admitted to making that statement that Madeline would end up like Gabby. Now, the criminal complaint also describes an interview that was held with one of Madeline's friends. That friend recalled a time when her and Madeline were speaking via video call. And during that call, Madeline was standing while holding one of her children and cooking dinner. Very mother thing to do. And the friend said she saw 
Adam enter the room and yell at Madeline to keep quiet. And then the friend says Madeline told Adam to calm down and that he said he wasn't going to calm down. And then he struck Madeline in the face with his hand. The friend also recounted that she had seen bruises on Madeline's face multiple times. So what all happened prior to the discovery of the remains? Well, following her disappearance, police did search the home shared by Madeline and Adam, and there they found her cell phone, wallet that included her ID, and a jacket that she'd been wearing earlier that day when she took the kids to daycare. Then during the next few days, thousands showed up in Winona, Minnesota to search for Madeline. But Adam was missing during those searches, which at the time disturbed the people in Minnesota, as well as disturbing you and me, to be honest. But Adam did release a statement to the public to explain his role in the disappearance. He said in that statement that over the course of the last 12 days, he and his family had been subject to a myriad of accusations regarding the disappearance of the mother of his children. And that during those 12 days, he had cooperated with law enforcement at every turn, including sitting down for multiple interviews. He also said he had nothing to do with Madeline's disappearance and that he wants the mother of his five-year-old and two-year-old to be found and brought home safely. He also said it was law enforcement who advised him to not participate in Madeline's searches. Now, Madeline's sister, Megan, along with other family members, continued to raise concerns over Adam's behavior. She knew relations were strained, and she had revealed to the public that despite the fact that Madeline and Adam were sharing a residence, they weren't a couple anymore. In fact, she said Madeline was looking for her own place. Now, during the investigation, police had drafted and served numerous search warrants, some of them specifically related to the dark blue Chrysler minivan that Adam and Madeline shared. And suspicion surrounded the van because Adam had spent most of the day of the disappearance in that van, claiming to be moving items to his parents' residence from a storage unit that the two had rented. I also think it's important to revisit this part of the case. Adam did not have custodial rights to the kids. The two children were immediately placed in the custody of Winona County Health and Human Services for a 72-hour hold following Madeline's disappearance. And remember, Adam and Madeline, they're not married, so no legal agreement had been reached for Adam to be considered their guardian. Now, when government officials arrived to take custody of the children, Adam was uncooperative, to say the least. He ushered one of the children into the home, and he locked the door, despite being told clearly that the children were under the care of Winona County. When Adam finally relinquished the two children, he wouldn't even allow bags to be packed with the kids' belongings. Eventually, the children left with authorities with only the clothes that they were wearing. Adam had tried unsuccessfully to regain the children via the court system over the following weeks, and a judge had ruled that the kids would remain in the custody of Madeline's parents. Now, there was another custody hearing that was scheduled for the first week of June, but following Adam's arrest, I'm sure other arrangements are now being reviewed by the courts. Now, at a vigil held for Madeline in early May, her family said the following, Although we don't know Maddie's whereabouts, we are still grieving the time we are missing with her. Even on the brightest days, it still feels dark and gloomy without her here. We wake up from nightmares and realize they are not as terrifying as the nightmare we are currently living. I truly hope Madeline's family has gained some small portion of peace knowing her body has been found. Adam is expected to appear via Zoom on July 20th for his next court hearing. 
He faces a possible sentence of 40 years in prison if found guilty of the charges as they currently stand. Now, prosecutors have also indicated the investigation is active and ongoing. And this is obviously an active case. And I'll update you, hopefully with good information for Madeline's family. Now let's get caught up on a case out of Missouri where an ER doctor who went missing on May 21st and was later found dead by a kayaker on May 30th. 49-year-old John Forsyth was reported missing when he didn't show up for his 7 p.m. shift at Mercy Hospital in Cassville, Missouri. This was very uncharacteristic for the doctor who stayed in an RV trailer not far from the hospital when he was working there. In fact, his brother told reporters that he wouldn't miss a shift even if his eyeballs were hanging out of their sockets. Okay, he was last seen by security cameras walking towards that RV near the hospital. He texted his fiance at that time, telling her he would see her a little bit later. And then he just stopped responding to texts. Police, after being notified of his potential disappearance, found his black infinity sedan at a parking area near Cassville Aquatic Park. John's wallet, his work briefcase, and a passport were discovered in the unlocked sedan. And John's luxury RV trailer, the one that was parked near the hospital, well, that was found unlocked also. And John's brother said this did not match his brother's habits of locking up everything. Now, law enforcement officials had used dogs and drones to search the nearly nine-mile radius of the state park in Missouri, but they had largely come up empty until a kayaker found John's body in Beaver Lake. Now, that's a large reservoir in northwestern Arkansas, and that's actually 20 miles away from where his car was parked and from where police were searching that aquatic park. So how did he get 20 miles from his car? Cameras at the parking area of the aquatic park pick up John's car pulling into the area. Then a few minutes later, a white SUV enters the area and parks near John's car. Then a few minutes after that, cameras catch John walking away. This all according to his brother. But they're unclear where he went after that. And authorities have released that John died from a gunshot wound, but they've yet to say where the gunshot wound is located on John's body. And John's brother, Richard, told Fox News that the Missouri State Police told them that they know more than the family thinks they do. He also expressed that following the two-hour interview with police last week, that he feels he's still in the dark about his brother's death. His brother Richard said, it just doesn't make any sense. Why would he go to Beaver Lake when he hasn't slept all night? He leaves his car at the other lake. He leaves his cell phone in his car. And he followed all of that up with the idea that there is no way John went on his own accord to Beaver Lake. Now, the case becomes even more bizarre as details about John's life emerge. Apparently, while saving lives as an ER doc, John and some of his family have developed a thriving cryptocurrency business that has brought much wealth to the family. He is also the father of eight children. He was recently divorced from the mother of seven of those children. And court documents show that John was ordered to pay $19,000 per month in child support and alimony and that he had not contested that ruling. Shortly after the divorce was finalized in May, He became engaged to an ER nurse who he works with. His family was unaware of the engagement and also was unaware of John's fiancée being eight months pregnant with the couple's child. 
In fact, most of the family had never met the nurse until after John's disappearance on May 21st. Now, despite the surprise news of the engagement, John's father told Fox News that he had never cried and prayed so much in the last two weeks, and that it had been wrenching to know that they were planning their wedding and that John's child would never meet their father. Well, there's more red flags, and they developed when his family released information about a possible abduction of John back in February of 2022. Even more bizarre, his family didn't know about the possible abduction until after his disappearance two weeks ago. Okay, if you're totally getting flashes of the Netflix series Ozark, which as a side note, it's really good. If you're getting those flashes as I'm telling you this story, well, I get it, because Here's how the family explains the ordeal from last year. They say John was zip-tied, then taken for a car ride on a cold February evening that ended on a bridge where people were threatening him. John was eventually let go, according to this acquaintance of the family that told them the story just a week ago. But he says the whole situation was about the cryptocurrency business and that he had not reported the harrowing ordeal to authorities or even told his family because he was trying to protect those that were close to him. Now, John's father told Fox News that John would say that he had made enemies along the way, but that he wouldn't elaborate about those situations. Okay, so let's talk about this cryptocurrency business. Well, in an interview with Forbes, John said he invested in crypto early on, and he was able to amass a fortune in the math-based currency. He said the massive appreciation of those assets allowed John and some family members to invest in another cryptocurrency technology, which ultimately led to the development of a company called Onfo. Now, Onfo, it's a little different from other Bitcoin. Users of Onfo actually sign up with a referral code and they earn cryptocurrency by sharing that code with others. The more the network grows, the more they earn. Okay, I'm thinking it's like multi-level marketing and traditional cryptocurrency had a baby and then Onfo was born. Well, unfortunately, the business didn't roll forward without some hiccups and that seemed to anger some of the users. And I think it's safe to say there's more to this story. As of now, three agencies are investigating the death of John, the Missouri State Highway Patrol, the Benton County Sheriff's Office in Arkansas, and the Cassville Police Department. And I'll obviously keep you updated as information comes forward and things develop. And let's finish with a quick update on the University of Idaho murders. Brian Koberger, who has been accused of killing four college students, said in a court hearing on Friday that he doesn't want cameras allowed during his October trial. He is also asking that the judge keep a gag order that some news organizations have called overly broad. Well, he wants that to stay in place. Remember, Koberger is accused of the brutal slayings of Maddie Mogan, Kaylee Goncalves, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chopin last November. And Kohlberger, well, he has pleaded not guilty to the charges. Okay, so what's up with this gag order? And why do some news agencies think it's overly broad? Well, both sides, the prosecution and the defense, well, they agreed immediately at Kohlberger's first hearing in Idaho to the non-dissemination order. So usually this means that it would bar anyone from the state or the defense from making statements outside the courtroom. That's pretty normal and basic. 
But following multiple interviews with survivors of the victims, the judge in the case extended that order to include family members of the victims and their individual attorneys as well. So since the more broad gag order was issued, law enforcement agencies have denied a number of public records requests for information that would most typically be released. And I'm sure one of those requests have been the release of the 911 call, which I know followers of this case have been so interested in hearing. Now, Kohlberger's attorneys even got detailed in Friday's hearing, saying that the gag order should stay in place because of broadcasts like Dateline, which they called biased and intense media coverage. They also cited that Dateline featured a leak that got facts wrong. They also called some media organizations a never-ending circus of bad facts and worse opinions. Now, the media coalition that wants the gag order removed, well, they're asking for cameras to be allowed during the trial. Other hearings and arraignments in the Koberger case have allowed cameras, and the coalition argues that not allowing cameras raises doubts about the integrity of the judicial process. Now, defense lawyers pointed out that Law and Crime's Sidebar podcast recently did an episode analyzing Koberger's body language. The defense lawyers called that pseudoscience, and they argued that the most recent Idaho case of Lori Vallow-Daybell did not have cameras, and that they're asking for the same. Now, the judge has taken the arguments under advisement, but has yet to rule on how the proceedings will be conducted. And I'd love to hear about what you think about cameras in the courtroom and coverage of cases that don't have gag orders. Does it taint the jury pool? Are witnesses intimidated when there are cameras in the courtroom? And does not having cameras make you question the validity of a trial? So leave me a comment, and I'll also follow this case and report once the judge makes her ruling. And of course, if the trial occurs in October as scheduled, we will have weekly updates during that trial. Well, that's your Monday edition of Rise and Crime, and a big thank you for showing so much love on the various platforms. I always appreciate the five-star ratings and reviews. You guys are just great. And check in with me on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. I love to hear your case suggestions. Join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there.